listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning, Bethel. I hope we are finding you and your family doing well. We sure do miss you. We miss being together this morning. Today, we're going to move into Romans 15. Now, I'm going to be covering verses 1 through 6, but if you want to cover the rest of the chapter of Romans, we're doing the same thing we did last week. And so, each weekday, we're going to post as kind of a daily devotional the sermons from each campus, and you put them all together, and you will have covered the whole chapter. So, we do encourage you to take a look at those. Uh, the beginning of 15, though, it's about unity. And so, I was thinking about unity a lot this week, and I realized you know, we see a lot of examples of unity when we look at the world around us. One of the biggest examples I thought of was the Army. And so if you've ever talked to anyone who's gone, gone into the Army, basic training, one of the first things they do at basic training is sit you down and they give you a haircut. And that haircut matches the guy who came before you and before you and the guy who will come after you. They give everyone the same haircut. And they give everyone the exact same clothes. And they try to get everyone to match as closely as possible. Now, why do they do that? Because they're trying to get rid of every semblance of individualism they can. And they're trying to unite everyone into one cohesive group. And, of course, we see that uh, on a smaller scale in lots of ways with sports teams. You know, back when we used to play sports, all the sports to a team is unified. They, they put on the same uniform and they match and they look alike. We certainly see this uh, in this time in political parties. There's lots of people trying to unite people to vote or for the same person. You know, sometimes we have unity around a common enemy, and that's what happened in my house this week. So this week, a little bit every night, we had a big game of dominoes going, and I probably don't have to tell you, I was winning. And so I came home the other day, and this is what I found. This is a contract. It's a contract that my family wrote up. I'm going to read it to you. It says, we'll unite together to beat daddy in dominoes. Signature, Caleb Wright, Hannah Wright, and Melissa Wright. And then here at the bottom, they called themselves the Allies. That's unity right there. Now, it's unity in defeat because as of right now, I'm still winning the game, but unity nonetheless. You know, in each of these examples, and I think probably most examples of unity that we see in the world around us, the way we achieve unity is through uniformity. But what's interesting is, that's not what we're going to find in Romans 15. Paul, uh, he's going to describe a different unity. In fact, Remember, there's two sides that are in a disagreement right now. Paul's never going to tell them they have to agree. Never. See, Christian unity is different. It's not about uniformity. Christian unity, it, it, well, it's kind of like the solar system. Now, if you've ever seen the solar system here, here it is. There's eight planets. There, When I was a kid, there was nine planets, but apparently we kicked Pluto out. But have you ever thought about how different these planets are? I did some research this week and learned a few things. So I learned that Saturn, you know, most people know Saturn by its rings, but did you know Saturn, it's mostly made up of gases. And so if you were able to fly a spaceship and land on Saturn, you wouldn't be able to stand up on it. You would just sink straight down. I also learned that winds on Saturn can reach up to 1,118 miles an hour, y'all. That's faster than the speed of sound. Uh, Mercury here is the closest to the sun. It can get up to 801 
degrees on the surface of Mercury. But did you know, even though it gets that hot, you can still find ice on the planet Mercury? I don't know why. I don't know how that works. I learned about Neptune over here. It's the farthest planet from the sun. I learned that it takes Neptune 164.8 years to do one orbit around the sun. So that means the whole time in all of human history that we've known that Neptune existed, it's only made it around the sun one time. Isn't that amazing? Those are very different, different than our planet. But if you think about it, for all the differences these planets have, they have one big thing in common, don't they? It's the sun. And each and every one of these planets orbits around this sun. And their relationship to the sun is the most important thing about them. It's what gives them each all of their different characteristics is their relationship, how far away they are from this sun. So here's what we're going to find out about Christian unity this morning. Christian unity revolves around one big thing. So it's not that, you know, we have to have everything in common. We just have to have one thing in common. It's not that we have to agree about everything. We just have to agree about one thing, but that one thing is the most important thing about us. So let's turn to Romans 15. We'll look at verse 1, and Paul is going to begin by explaining what Christian unity looks like. Uh, Let's read verse 1. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So Paul begins by addressing the strong. He says, I'm talking to you. And what's interesting is he includes himself in that group. So we got to first ask, okay, who are the strong? And so let's remember the context. Last week, chapter 14, in this church, there's a disagreement. And there's two sides to this disagreement. And they're kind of arguing about, is it okay for a Christian to eat food, eat meat in particular, that's sacrificed to idols? And are Christians obligated to observe the Sabbath? And so one group Paul calls the strong. And these are the ones who are a little bit more mature in their faith because he says they realize that following Jesus, listen, it's not about food, it's about faith. Not this or that food, it's about my faith. And so with that maturity comes some liberty. And so they are free to eat or to not eat. Now, the other group he calls the weak, and these are some that are less mature in their faith. But listen, they are still just as saved. And Paul says they are even still just as able to honor God in their actions. They are simply, uh, they still need some extra boundaries in place to kind of help them along as they follow Jesus. Here's one way to think about it. Uh, Have you ever been bowling with your family? My family, when we go bowling, my kids are still young enough, they need the bumper lanes. And actually those bumper lanes are helpful to teach my kids how to bowl because they're kind of immature bowlers. Now I'm a grown man, I'm a mature bowler. I don't need those bumper lanes. Now, There's actually a way, think about it, that me being able to bowl without the bumper lanes while they bowl with them actually helps us enjoy the experience together, doesn't it? It actually creates some unity by allowing each of us to to be where we are, and and that's okay. Now, it it would be kind of silly for my kids to say, you know what, since we have to use bumper lanes, you have to use bumper lanes, and not only you, anyone ever in the whole world that ever bowls has to use bumper lanes. That's, that's legalism. But you know what? There's a sense also that it would be cruel for me as the more mature bowler to, to say, you know what? A mature bowler doesn't need bumper lanes. And so you guys, your whole life, you're barred from ever using bumper lanes. 
in a sense, I would, be, I would be expecting a level of maturity for them that's not fair, and I would even be removing a tool for them that would help them grow and learn, wouldn't I? And so that's why I think Paul is addressing the strong. What Paul is doing in this first verse, he's looking at the strong and he's saying, hey, strong unity is your responsibility. It's your responsibility. And so there's a sense that, that Paul, he agrees with them theologically, but he disagrees with their approach relationally. And so he tells the strong, listen, unity is going to happen when you do two things. First, you need to bear with the failings of the weak. Paul is telling the strong to willingly, lovingly assume on themselves some of the burdens that the weak are carrying. And so he's telling them, listen, I don't don't want you to just tolerate them. I certainly don't want you to dismiss them. I want you to move toward them, move toward them with empathy, with love, with understanding. He's calling them to enter into their world. Paul's saying when it comes to unity, the key isn't what you think about this or that debatable topic. The key is what you think about this or that person. That's what's going to create unity. And second, he says, hey, strong, you don't come to church to please yourself. He says, Christian unity will never happen as long as each person walks into the church saying, what's here for me? What's in it for me? He says, unity will happen when each and every one of us walks into the church and asks questions like, who can I build up today? Who can I serve today? Or even what accommodations can I make for maybe some of those who are still growing and maturing? By the way, he says, this is an obligation. It's not extra. It's not bonus. It's not icing on the cake. This is what it looks like to be a part of the body of Christ. Well, then verse 2, Paul, he further explains how unity looks. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. He says, unity looks like pleasing your neighbor. Now, he doesn't mean that we just uh, do anything and everything that every person thinks is going to make them happy. No, he defines what it looks like to please someone. He defines it in two ways. You work for their good and for their edification. They're, they're building up. And so the, what he's describing here is the, the goal is for us to help the weak grow, to lead them to strength. So here's a, a picture of what this may look like. You know, you may be walking around carrying a, a bag of rocks, a big, heavy burden. And then there's someone else who's strong in their faith. And so they, they drop their rocks, they drop their burden a long time ago, and they're free. But in their freedom, they come to you and they say, man, that, that sure looks heavy. Can I, can I take some of that load for you? But then it doesn't stop there. After a while, the strong may look to you and may say, you know, because of what Jesus did a long time ago, I dropped my burdens. Why don't we both do that? Why don't we both drop this bag of rocks? And so in that way, the weak learn to lay down their burdens too. And listen, this is a message our culture needs to hear, isn't it? You know, no one will ever grow in Christ by us yelling at them about how right we are and how wrong they are. People will grow by us being Christ-like and our love towards them. That's what will help people grow. Now, I don't don't know if you've noticed this. What Paul is asking us to do here is really hard. And it goes against every natural inclination I have. And so next, Paul is going to give us two resources. 
He's going to say, these are the two resources you need to be able to make unity happen. They're one, the work of Christ, and two, the witness of scriptures. Let's look at verse three, where he talks about the work of Christ. He says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul says, look at Christ. He did not live his life to meet his own needs, to make himself happy, but to serve others. He says, Christ, you know, he was perfect. He was innocent, but still he took on, he bore the insult, mockery, and even death that was due us. Paul's trying to let us know that the only reason you can pick up and bear someone else's burdens is because Jesus first bore your burdens. And so, you know, there, there will be times, and I certainly have times like this in, in my life, where you, you will find yourself tired, tired of loving others, tired of fighting for unity. And you may find yourself thinking things like this, you know what, I'm right and they're wrong, so why should I cater to them? Or I'm strong, they are weak. Or you know what, I'm innocent, they're guilty. It's their fault this is happening. You know what, Paul says, okay, when you think that, pump the brakes. In fact, let's substitute some names here because what's even more true is, you know what, Jesus was right and I was wrong. Jesus was strong and I was weak. Jesus was innocent, but I was guilty. And yet, Isaiah 53, 4 says that Jesus, he, he bore on himself our grief. He picked up and he carried our sorrows. See, in the, in the church, we're not treating people based on who they are and what they've done. We are treating people based on the work of Christ, who he is and what he has done. And that's what unity looks like. So next, Paul points us to the witness of Scripture in verse 4. He says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. He's telling us that the Scriptures, they do far more than just report facts to us. He says they provide us with a vital ingredient, ingredient for unity, hope. We have to have hope. And we experience that hope in two ways, he says. The first is endurance. It's, the picture is this ability to withstand pressure coming down on you. So it's very similar to the idea of bearing up on a burden in verse 1. And then encouragement, the spurring on to keep going. It's this kind of renewed assurance. And he says, listen, without, without uh, the, the witness of scriptures in your life encouraging you every step along the way, you will give up on unity. You will lose hope. It is simply too hard on your own. But there's something we have to understand about these two resources, the work of Christ and the witness of Scripture. They work together. And this is so cool. Let's look at verse 5 now. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Notice how he describes God here. The God of what? Endurance and encouragement. The exact same two words from verse 4. He's saying what the scriptures produce in us, they find their ultimate source. They come from him. They come from God. And so it comes to us from God through the scriptures. What another way to think of it is, as the Bible shows us what he is like, it transforms us into his likeness. 
So he says, unity is granted to us by God. It is given from him. It comes from him. And that means, men and women, if you are not following Christ, you will not have unity. That means if you are following Christ only passively, you will not have much unity. Unity will only come when the work of Christ is constantly dictating our actions towards others and the witness of Scripture is constantly producing in us God's character. That's our only hope for unity. But when we do follow Christ, something amazing happens. He says we begin to live in harmony. So the picture is kind of like a symphony of all these different instruments that look different and sound different, but they are all united under one beautiful piece of music that's greater than any individual. And what is that one thing, that one piece of music? Well, he says the harmony is in accordance with Christ Jesus. So it's not in accord with food laws or holy days or any other opinions they may have. In fact, they can continue to disagree about those things. The basis of that unity is that both sides, their lives revolve around Jesus Christ. This is solar system unity. All these different planets revolving around one big thing. That means, men and women, listen, unity isn't going to come to the church when we all begin to dress the same, vote the same, talk the same, parent the same, or even we're on the same side of every theological debate. Unity comes when you and I are both following something greater than all those things. Christian unity revolves around one big thing, and that is Jesus Christ. And so Paul closes in verse 6 by telling us the point of all this unity. It gives God the glory. Let's read verse 6. He says, that, that, so that, for the purpose of, together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. He says there are one voice. It literally means one mouth. It is a picture of worship of all of us together proclaiming out loud the goodness of God, and it's to his glory. That is the glory of God. It's the final goal of everything. In fact, it's the whole purpose of the church, and so we don't proclaim our strength. We don't proclaim our rightness. We proclaim him. That's what we do, and so that's how we're going to close this service by glorifying him with one voice. You know, in in a sense, church, we are physically separated, it's true, but still there is a unity that transcends all of our current circumstances. And so, yeah, from your perspective, it may just be you or maybe just in your, your family in your living room singing alone. But think about it from God's perspective. From where he sits, he sees and he can hear us with one voice. As he looks, he sees a group of people united together under the work of Christ who are with one voice declaring his praises, declaring his goodness, and giving him the glory. So think about that as we sing this morning with one voice. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.